Romans 15, we are given this assurance, that the nature of God's word stems from the very nature of God himself. Our God is the God of all comfort. Therefore, his word gives us comfort that we might endure in hope as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. No wonder then that God calls us to pay careful attention to his word because there is comfort in close reading. Father in heaven, we praise you for your glory. We thank you that you have revealed it to us in the pages of scripture and particularly in the one to whom the scriptures testify, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we behold him, transform us, we pray, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, that we might give the praise, the honour, the glory to you through him in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me ask you a simple question, uh, but one that has uh, more than one answer. Why did God save us? Why did God save you? Why did he save me? On one hand, the answer is very simple, and we teach it to our children, and they can understand it, and we declare it with thanksgiving and praise every day of the week. It's that God loves us. He saved us because he is merciful. He's good. He's gracious. His nature is to forgive, and what the blessing that is, what a blessing it is to us to receive God's love. But on the other hand, there's a different answer. The answer is that God saved us to bring glory and honour to himself. It's not one that we necessarily think about as often. We like to think of our salvation as being the fruit of God's love, and it is, and it's true, but God is doing something more than loving us by saving us. He is revealing his glory. He is glorifying himself, and we exist for his glory. In fact, it's the very reason why God created all things. And because he is the creator of all things, he is worthy to receive honour and praise and glory. And in the church, in uh, his salvation of us, those marvellous visions in the book of Revelation, as creation gathers around him, giving glory to him, but when the lamb does his work, the lamb who is slain and yet sits at God's right hand, thoroughly alive, the church gives glory to God through him. Why did God save us? He loves us, but he seeks to honour and glorify himself. How does that sit with you? Does that make God's love somehow feel a bit less? I just exist for his glory, his reputation. Does it make God's love seem somehow a bit hollow? God's glory is his love. God's glory is his compassion, is his mercy, is his forgiveness. God's glory is all of those things, and yet his ability to maintain justice and righteousness, even as he forgives sin. On the mountain at Sinai, and we've come back time and time again to Sinai to think about the nature of church over the last few weeks. What happens at Sinai? Moses is on the mountain and Moses says in Exodus 33, now show me your glory. And God shows him his glory by proclaiming his name, Yahweh. And how does he describe himself when the glory of God is revealed to Moses? 
He is the gracious and compassionate God, abounding in steadfast love, yet will by no means clear the uh, wicked of their iniquity, but will punish them. God is both merciful and righteous. That is the glory of God. When God loves us, he is also glorifying himself. It's not that God loved us, but also he glorifies himself. It's God loves us, therefore he is glorified. When we are saved in Christ, when we are brought together as church, God loves us. He has forgiveness and mercy. And yet he is able to do so while maintaining his righteousness and justice. And there God is glorified. Because what is glory? Glory is the revelation of the greatness of somebody. Somebody is great in character, in nature, in deed, in their acts, in their being. And their glory is the revelation of that, the declaration of it, the unveiling of it, that everybody can see how great that person is because of their character, because of their being, because of their deeds. In the wee small hours of this morning, there was an experience of glory across the far side of the world in a sport that I'm particularly interested in uh, with two particular teams, uh, one of whom is very much the underdog and, well, I won't give it away because some people might want to watch the game later. Um, Just don't look at my bag that I'm carrying this morning. And um, uh, an experience of glory. The team won the Champions League of the European football competition. They'll celebrate it over the next few days. They're probably celebrating it right now in their way. And over the course of the next year, as the new competition begins, it'll get referred to and mentioned. But within the next 18 months, it'll just become another statistic. It fades. It passes away. And we've all met the people, and perhaps we've been those people from time to time, where the things that we glory in are not glorious at all. The sports people who boast of their sexual prowess, their their conquering of women. The people that boast in their defiance of rule and law. The people who boast in the way they treat people badly. Glory, as we see it in God, is not fading and is true glory because it is bound up in the revelation of his greatness. But why are we thinking about this when it comes to church? Over the course of this term, we've been thinking about uh, God's great plan and grand vision for church uh, through the sweep of the scriptures and giving us God's eyes and God's perspective on what is happening in church. Church is bound up with the glory of God. As we've been going through verses and passages that I hope are now familiar, getting more more familiar to us, I've been trying to pick out various themes each week. And as we go through some of the verses that we've been looking at over the last month or so, I hope you see a new word pop out, the theme of glory when it comes to church. It's right there at the Exodus. As we've been seeing uh, over the last few weeks, that Sinai and the Exodus moment give us the pattern of church, that it's not, it comes after salvation, not before salvation. And it's the gathering of God's people, yes, but it's the gathering of God's people by God's grace. And it's the gathering of God's people by God's grace to God himself. But notice Deuteronomy 5, how it's described. Moses says, and you said, behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. 
Or again in Exodus 24, as they're there at the mountain, the glory of God dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. As the tabernacle is built, the tent is built, which will go with the people, the symbol of God's presence amongst the people. What happens? There's the promise there in Exodus 29. At the entrance of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, I will meet with you there to speak with you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And as the book of Exodus concludes... We've had the great vision of what the tabernacle is to be like. We've had the tabernacle built across 20 chapters and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God dwells amongst his people. That is what he has saved us for, a people for himself, a people for his very own, saved by his love and mercy to experience his presence. And in the experience of his presence, his glory is revealed, his greatness, the greatness of his nature and character and being. And so, throughout the scriptures, where the presence of God is spoken about amongst his people, time and again, we see God and his glory. 1 Kings chapter 8, as the temple is built, when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the Lord, because of the glory, because the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The temple, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people, filled with the glory of God, the greatness of God. At the, uh, the passage that we heard read this morning comes at the end uh, of the exile, a vision of what will happen after the exile. Earlier on in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel had had a vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God and had seen the majesty of God and his greatness. And that vision that he had seen then later on included seeing that glory of God depart from the temple, depart from Jerusalem and leave the city. God letting his people go and abandoning them to judgment. But here in Ezekiel 43, we see this grand vision of the glory of God returning the glory of God returning and dwelling in the temple again and God being with his people. The glory of the Lord filled the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. But the vision is something far greater than Israel ever experienced. In these chapters of Ezekiel, there's about eight chapters describing the temple and what happens with the rebuilding of the temple. But it's a vision of a temple that is ridiculous in proportion, could never be built. If you measure out the dimensions of it, it's like building a temple from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. That's how vast the temple is that is being built in this vision. It's a vision for God dwelling amongst his people in a way that is beyond human comprehension, in a way that is beyond human achievement, a way that is beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. And of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
God got glory over Pharaoh at the Exodus and revealed his glory to his people at Sinai. God's glory, the symbol of his presence, the manifestation of his presence amongst his people, the display of his greatness. Temple, exile, return from exile, a vision of a new temple in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yes, now in the church. Ephesians 3, 20, 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. And yes, in the new creation itself. What do we have to look forward to? Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, we exist for the glory of God. It's the reason why you and I were made. It's the reason why you and I were saved. We exist to the glory of God. But the grace that we have in Jesus is that we more than just take part in God's glorification of himself. But he allows us to witness it, to experience it, to love and cherish it, and even to participate in it. Perhaps you're familiar with uh, those verses uh, from 1 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God. As those who are in Christ, our lives not only are for the glory of God, we exist for his glory, but he allows us to glorify him. Whereas under uh, those outside of Christ, uh, as Isaiah would say, even their best deeds were like filthy rags in God's sight. Those in Jesus are able to please God and bring honour to him and glorify him in a way that we could not do outside of Christ. But there's a warning that goes with that. We're not free to glorify God however we want. I want to glorify God by doing this or doing that. Even if it sounds pious, even if it sounds godly, and so the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 thought that they could honour and glorify God by taking uh, what is due of a child to a parent and giving it over to God instead. And Jesus says, no, the way we honour and glorify God is not through our own rules. It's not through our own desires, even if they're genuinely motivated. It's through living in obedience to our God and glorifying him as he says and as he directs. Whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we do it all for the glory of God. But we must remember that God will glorify himself. He doesn't need you and me to glorify him. He's not needy. He could raise up people to praise and even the stones themselves to praise him. He doesn't need us to praise him. And unless we understand that, our desire to glorify God in all that we do and say will fall short because we must remember our creaturely nature. We must remember that he will glorify himself as he chooses through us. And so then we must know that we are to be for 
the glory of God. He will choose and ordain his purposes for us. No matter what we plan, no matter what we think we will do, it is the Lord's will that prevails and he will choose how we are for his glory. What has that got to do with the church? Well, a few things. The first thing that we need to celebrate and remember and give thanks and joy for is that the fact that the church exists at all is to the glory of God. Because what is God's glory? It's the revelation of his character and the greatness of his character. He has saved a people for himself, expressed his love and justice in the person of the Lord Jesus. And now we will be his people and he will be our God and we live with him and dwell with him. It's a spiritual reality as we saw last week at the moment we are gathered spiritually in his presence. We express it and reflect it uh, uh, in the here and now, but there is a day coming when we will dwell with him in the new creation. The fact that the church exists is to the glory of God the recipients of his salvation. But more than that, how God chooses to save a people for himself is to his wisdom and the display of his wisdom and therefore his glory. You notice that from that reading in Ephesians chapter 3, as God calls people not just from the Jews but from the nations as well, as God breaks down dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between people of different languages, tribes, nations and tongues, God shows his wisdom. God displays his wisdom to bring a people from everywhere to himself. But it's a wisdom that's displayed not necessarily in the earthly realms, but it's a wisdom displayed to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms. There is far more going on in the fact of our gathering, in the fact of our churching, than what we can see with our naked eyes. But spiritually discerned, we see a wisdom, a glory of God, to gather a people for himself as the expression, the fruit, the manifestation and realisation of his very nature and character to love, to cherish, to treasure, to be jealous for, to make right. That is the context in which we don't just understand the fact of church, but the act of church as well. First and foremost, our gathering together expresses his glory by the mere fact of our gathering together. If you have ever found yourself thinking, my presence in church is pretty useless, it wouldn't matter whether I'm here or not. It's not like I participate in church, I just sit there. If that's how you feel, if that's what you think, if that's what you believe, brothers and sisters, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes with joy and thanksgiving because the mere fact of your attendance is not mere at all but is glorious in God's sight and expresses and reflects his wisdom and his glory in this world. You participate in church by attending. Your very presence here this morning is to the wisdom and praise and glory of our God. How we conduct our church is to be to his glory. Not free to do it as we would like, not free to decide for ourselves what it looks like to glorify him, but to live out this expression and reflection of church 
as he desires it, to gather, to hear him speak and respond. And yes, that will include singing. It will include praise, gloriously so, but so much more than that. And what God looks at as you sing is the words come out. Are we honouring him with our lips, but also with our hearts? I haven't quoted some old texts for a while, so let me go back to Shakespeare, give you a bit of Shakespeare, Hamlet. Uh, who's read Hamlet? Or oh, even better, who's seen Hamlet? Um, uh, in Hamlet, uh, the king at one point is praying and Hamlet's about to kill him um, in revenge, but thinks, I can't do it because he's praying and uh, he must be forgiven by God and he must be repenting of his sins. Uh, except the king, as he prays, he prays, and at the end of it, he says, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. We must honour God not just with our lips, but with our hearts also. As we gather together, the fact of church's existence, the act of us gathering together brings wisdom and glory to God. But again, we must spiritually discern the nature of glory. It is all too easy in this day and age of technology, of visuality, to see glory residing in the outward show. A church is more glorious when it's full of young people rather than those of us whose glory is well and truly outwardly fading. <laughs> How much better is a church with a smoke machine? Expensive lighting, great sound tech, loud, vibrant music. How much glor more glorious is a church that dims the lights and has celebrated preachers on the stage? How much more glorious is a church that's huge rather than small? These are worldly things and must be let go of. They are deceptions and the glory is fading. God is glorified because he has saved a people for himself. God is glorified when we meet together and love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. God is glorified when we listen to him and respond to him together. The glory that God gives us in this ministry is far greater than that of the old covenant. It was fading in Moses' time, but in Jesus it lasts forever. But that glory that we have now is found in the context of weakness, frailty. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Do not be deceived. Do not find glory in the outwardly showy, the outwardly successful, those with the brilliant advertising campaigns. No, find the glory of God. And in this day and age, like his own son, who was crucified, beaten, mocked, scorned, killed, we will find glory in weakness.
Well, there's a lot more that I could say. I promised my parish council the preacher would keep himself to time uh, this week. Um, there goes that. Don't put your trust in princes, I tell you. Um, let me conclude with one more thing, and this is uh, quite a serious one. Never, never let someone in a church, particularly someone in the leadership team of a church, tell you to keep sin quiet in order to protect God's reputation. If a minister sleeps with women and tells them to keep it quiet because it would damage the church and God's reputation, that is utterly heinous and evil. The thing that maligns God's church and God himself is the fact of the sinfulness, not the uncovering of it. In the spiritual realms, it's already uncovered. Everybody knows about it in the spiritual realms. And on that final day, it will be uncovered. Whether it's uncovered now or not is neither here nor there. God is maligned and God's church is maligned when people sin, not when sin is discovered. If a minister bullies his staff or spiritually abuses his congregation, tells them to be quiet, to protect reputations, staff leave on acrimonious terms, but are never allowed a word to say what happened. And the narrative is entirely controlled by the minister to protect his own reputation in the name of protecting God's reputation. These things are evil and need to be repented of. Praise God that hopefully in your experience, you have never seen those things. Pray for nominators that they don't appoint a man who would do those things. But on the assumption that we're all still sinful this side of glory and things do happen and that we won't necessarily be at this church for the rest of our days, be on guard against people that would use God as a means to defect, deflect sin, to cover up sin. And for those of you who read Christian news, you will know that yet again it has happened. Famous platform speakers. We must be principled. And we mustn't seek to cover up. The times I've heard in ministry, people say, yes, he's a bully. Yes, they won't let new ministers work with him because he is a bully. But it's just him. That is heinous. When ministers say it's people who are tended towards bullying that grow the gospel in our land, that needs to be repented of. And it's your responsibility, not just mine, to call that kind of thing to account. And you can't call it to account if you're not aware of it. God will look after his own glory. He will glorify himself. He doesn't need us to defend him. He needs us to honour him. And that involves repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, at this very moment, God is being glorified as you and I gather in his presence. At this very moment, God is being glorified as we hear the word of God and respond with repentance and faith. At this very moment, God is being glorified as we respond to him in prayer and thanksgiving and praise to his name. But it will be in the context of weakness. It will be in the context of suffering and hardship. But that doesn't worry us because we see spiritually the glory of our God the greatness of his love, the greatness of his compassion, the greatness of his justice and his righteousness. And we praise him that he is good 
and that glory doesn't fade. It stands forever. Sandeep's going to lead us in prayer in just a moment, but let me conclude with the prayer at the end of Ephesians 3. Now to you, Heavenly Father, who are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that you work within us, to you be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus our Saviour, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching hosted here at Comforting Close Reading. If you're looking for other resources, you can head over to our main site, scriptorium.net.au. If you have any questions, our email address is right at scriptorium.net.au.